Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Feeling Scene podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And it is an exceedingly exciting day for me personally on this podcast. I'm feeling so seen by this guest. Uh, I'm feeling so happy that they're here. I met this guest, uh, like so many people, honestly, in my life, via Twitter. And it was a smashing success. I was on a podcast of hers that we will mention here today. And before we even started recording, I think we talked for three hours. And this was during the lockdown. So we've been trans-oceanic communing and podcasting ever since. Uh, She is responsible for the Final Girls podcast, which is coming up with a new season soon. I consider her, Anna Bogutskaya, to be the center of British film media, which is something she will dispute, but I will continue saying as long as I am on my show. So the epicenter of British film media is coming up with a book called Unlikable Female Characters the Women Pop Culture Wants You to Hate. Center of British film journalism, film mind, film thinker, film curator, film programmer, Annabelle Gutskaya, what do the people need to know about you before we get started? Oh, God, Jordan. Uh, One thing people need to know about me before we get started, I am absolutely terrified because (laughs) I know you. I have listened to so many of your insightful, incisive interviews with people. I am terrified to be on the other side of this conversation. It had not occurred to me, friends out there, that I had never, because like whenever I'm on Anna's, I, I always just think of like that I'm on Anna's show talking to her, but it is interview structured. She is the one moderating and guiding the conversation. So it is the more interviewer, interviewee dynamic. It had never occurred to me that in all of our interactions in these years and all the podcasts that we have done with one another, that I haven't ever been like the moderator interviewer of her. So this is very crazy. Uh, this is exciting. It's terrifying. But you know what? If I'm going <laughs> to let anyone do it, it's going to be you, Jordan Cruciola. Put me under the Cruciola knife, basically, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Let's all let's all open up wide and show everybody what we're all about here. Um, podcasting maven, film maven, uh, you've programmed for film festivals. You obviously written a book about film. You are steeped in the comparative literature of cinema. And you, with unlikable female characters, this is a perfect bridge to the character that you have brought to discuss today. Who have you brought for us to discuss in your feeling scene interview? I worry about what this might say about me, but I've brought (laughs) Tracy Flick as portrayed by the great and very young in this film, Reese Witherspoon in the film Election. I believe in the voters. They understand that elections aren't just popularity contests. They know this country was built by people just like me who work very hard and don't have everything handed to them on a silver spoon. Not like some rich kids who everybody likes because their fathers own Metzler cement and give them trucks on their 16th birthday and throw them big parties all the time. No, they don't ever have to work for anything. They think they can just all of a sudden one day out of the blue waltz right in with no qualifications whatsoever and try to take away what other people have worked for very, very hard their entire lives. I want to talk about 90s Reese. I want to talk about 90s Reese pre-legally blonde Reese. And this figure that we see almost coming out of like a background of exploitation films. Mm -hmm. And this kind of being like, I feel like the last biggest thing that we're going to see from her before her career effectively changes completely with Legally Blonde. This is an, un we got an unlikable girl on our hands coming from things like Freeway and Election. And I don't know how you feel about the movie Fear, ladies and gentlemen, but like a damsel in distress and a classic erotic thriller. Like, I want to hear your thoughts on 90s Reese as a foundation builder here. God, I mean, there's, there's so many questions hidden in what you've just said, Jordan, because mm. on the one hand, the being a person who does not make movies, but participates uh, in the discourse around movies and all the other universe that exists around film appreciation, film history, film festivals, film criticism, um, you're essentially talking about a character that makes you feel seen or that you mm. identify with in some way is almost antagonic to what we're meant to be doing. Mm. I'm all about the connections, but a lot of them have very little to do with myself personally. Right. So the real task of this podcast was was a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
to go back to your real question about 90s Reese, mm-hmm. I mean, we have kind of like three different images of Reese Witherspoon, don't we? Because mm. there's the early career Reese with the films that you've mentioned, The Freeway, The Fear, you know, Pleasantville, yeah. Cool Intentions, Pleasant Election Girl, she's to the point. bad girl. She's the yeah. bad girl, little sister. Exactly. And she kind of oscillates between this sort of very 90s era of lethal lolitas that existed in a subgenre of the erotic thriller genre. We're thinking about the Drew Barrymore as well of the early 90s with Poison Ivy. We're thinking about Alicia Silverstone. She also had that phase with... Mm -hmm. God, what's the one called? The babysitter and the the babysitter and true crime, all of which are about older men trying to fuck Alicia Silverstone and how it's her fault. Uh, Well, well, they're all about older men trying to fuck Alicia Silverstone, but actually it's because she wants to fuck them so badly because obviously a 15 year old girl has nothing else to do except lust after her middle aged neighbor. Exactly. Reese is very much in this era, very Mm -hmm. much in this sub, sub, sub genre of thriller movies at this mm-hmm. time and then she becomes a rom-com star then she uh-huh. becomes kind of more of a fluffy pinkier high femme kind of movie star and mm-hmm. now when her current iteration of you know sort of an, uh, a full grown woman Reese Witherspoon she's a powerhouse you know she's she a has mogul this- yeah, she is. She's built an incredibly successful business, several actually. Mm-hmm. She's a producer. She has an incredibly powerful book club. Like yes. she has developed a brand essentially that is all about finding stories, adapting stories that is kind of like um a high quality le- level of production that you expect from her brand. Now, very often she's not actually the actress in them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes she is, sometimes she isn't, but it's, you know, it's the big little lies of it all. Mm. It's the, you know, the, the uh, finding a book that will somehow penetrate through the um, unbelievable amount of content that we have to <laughs> yeah. sort through mm-hmm. if we want to find something that suits our mood on a particular day. And that's across television, streaming, film, books, podcasts, everything else. And mm-hmm. she has really transformed herself into a tastemaker mm-hmm. and into a kingmaker as well, because she will, you know, through her company's find those books she'll land those er very very er very early options and she will make them into hits Mm -hmm. and you know that's not what you would expect of blonde um you know tiny Mm -hmm. young actress from the early 90s like so many others well you might expect that from tracy flick though the character (laughs) (laughs) then were you watching those movies in your in your youth before you saw Election. So did you have a kind of recall with Reese when you were introduced to Tracy Flick? I didn't. My first interaction with Reese was through Cruel Intentions. So my ah. image of her was very much of kind of the good virginal kind of girl, you know, mm-hmm. with a slight edge because, you know, mm-hmm. without spoiling Cruel Intentions, she does she does do some question, morally questionable things. Justified, yeah. but still questionable. <laughs> but that, that kind of was my perception of her. Uh, but I do remember this moment of of kind of teenage focused thrillers mm-hmm. um and i've always had a soft spot for them i mean poison ivy is one of my favorite films of this era personally mm-hmm. but election actually came to me first through probably alexander payne it okay. was in my and was it in real time era. was this a, you saw this in the in 1999 no, I definitely okay. saw it in the early mid 2000s. This is okay. probably my film bro era where it was essentially Jordan just completing the canon of things <laughs> yeah. that I had been told by an anonymous, very male critical community were mm-hmm. the films that I had to watch if I could call myself as a person with taste. Of course. I desperately wanted to be a person with taste. Yes. And I didn't realize that you develop your taste through your own <laughs> personality and your experiences. And it's not like a tick box of things that you have to see mm-hmm. so I remember watching this film and I was trying really hard as a as I knew we were going to be talking about this film to remember what I thought about it at that time mm-hmm. and honestly Jordan I can't I cannot remember what it was about this film that sat with me and I think as I've seen it over the years I've probably gravitated between the characters in mm-hmm. the same way as the voiceover it changes as as we watch the film like yeah. it jumps from um Matthew Roderick's character to Reese's character 
and it kind of gives them the interiority of the film i probably mm-hmm. had the same experience because probably in when i watched it when i was younger i was be like oh tracy flick that little bitch she probably would have bullied me in high school i would have hated her i like <laughs> in proje- your film bro era definitely yes. hating tracy flick absolutely yeah because but then probably i hated her because i arguably was kind of not dissimilar to her in temperament. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> Can I tell you my first experience of election? Because it is Please. the most, one of the most evocative first film experiences I've ever had in my entire life. Mm-hmm. It's 1999, or probably early 2000 at this point. It's like the, it's. I think it was like summertime and like lists have come out and like, I remember like election, it was just like a buzz, like people talking about election. I remember reading like an issue of People magazine and it was like, who are the stars, what are the stars favorite movies this year? And so many of them were like, election was amazing. And so me and my mom, I don't know why we had the house to ourselves that night, but we were like, all these people are saying amazing things about election. Let's rent that. And me and we don't talk about sexy things in my family. We don't talk. I am an asexual person. We don't like we don't kibitz with our mom about boys or girls or who that is. So there's a fucking steel curtain between any of that shit. So I'm sitting on the couch watching election with my mom and it is the most uncomfortable movie viewing experience I have had in my entire life. I We are both migrating so far to the opposite ends of the couch. I'm practically crawling over the arm of it to get as far as possible from her. And I'm watching it the whole time being like, this movie's horrible. Why did everyone like this movie? This is so bad. And I remember, like, I'm not laughing at anything because I, 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 I couldn't even think it was funny. I was so fucking uncomfortable. And then it ended... And me and my mom like looked at each other. We were like, "That was that was so bad. Like, I can't believe people like this movie is so bad." And then like years later, I watched it again. I was like, "Oh, election's good. I just, <laughs> election's good. I was I was physically incapacitated and unable to appreciate a single thing about it at the time." The movie Election takes place in Omaha, Nebraska, in a high school, small town high school, and Matt, like you said, Matt alternates POVs between characters, predominantly Matthew Broderick's Mr. McAllister and Tracy mm-hmm. uh, Reese Witherspoon's Tracy Flick. Then there's adorable himbo Paul, the captain of the you know the the injured like QB one of the football team, so on and so forth. There is this revolves around the school election for class president. Tracy's running unopposed until Mr. McAllister, who hates Tracy, convinces the jock Paul to run against her. And then in his deep interior dislike for and resentment for Tracy, Mr. McAllister basically ruins his own life to sabotage her run for class president. (laughs) Completely ruins his own life. And detail of the backstory, his former best friend teacher at the school, Mr. Novotny, had a sexual relationship with Tracy when she was probably starting either sophomore or junior, like junior year. So she's a 15, 16 year old kid. And one of the first things you see in this movie is a close-up of the actor playing Mr. Novotny saying, and this makes, I can't, I, I don't even want to say it, but it, he said, her pussy gets so wet you wouldn't believe it. And I feel like I'm going to throw up on my microphone even saying that right now. But that's how this movie greets us. And that's how it greeted me and my mom. And I wanted to die. <laughs> I wanted to die. So this movie, like, you talk about, like, you know, being drawn to things, like, with more of an edge on them. This movie's, like, edge cut me immediately when I was watching it. And I watch it now, and I'm even still, like, fuck, it's crazy to think about this movie coming out in 2023, honestly. Like, it, it's yeah. the the idea of, like, transgressive cinema and sort of horror having its bloom. And, like, we're A24 pushing the boundaries of things. IFC Midnight Neon and all those things. Watching it now is even, like shit this still feels like like a one-off like i I, it doesn't it's it's almost hard to believe when i'm watching election and tracy flick what do you think this movie thinks of tracy flick well the thing is it gets mixed up in my mind sometimes because i've read so much about the reaction to the movie yeah yeah and a part of this film uh part of this film's kind of mythology is that everybody hates tracy flick right yeah she's annoying she's shrewy she's try hard she's a little striver she's a little know-it-all she's a little nerd she's uh-huh. too ambitious ethics are rules of conduct tracy flick tracy flick i'd seen a lot of ambitious students come and go over the years but tracy flick she was a special case some people say I'm an overachiever, but I think they're just jealous. My mom always tells me I'm different, you know, special. And if you look at all the things I've accomplished so far, 
think you'd have to agree. And then, you know, everything else kind of gets lost in a shuffle. We really forget about the that first scene, mm-hmm. that line, the close-up, the way that there, there's freeze frames on her face as we meet her, where it's kind of contorted mid-expression. Yeah, know? like so un- unattractive, unsightly. It's, it's all kind of uglified. And it's yeah. because we're seeing it through the point of view of Mr. McAllister, who mm-hmm. is petty they're both Mm. petty characters but he is a grown-ass adult and she is an ambitious teenager Mm -hmm. and she does not know any better and he does and he's inconvenienced Mm. by the fact that her mother you know gets the teacher who was having a sexual relationship with her fired yeah he's inconvenienced by that and so he decides to ruin not legally no legal repercussions fired no fire lives to fight another day at another school district yeah, continues to work uh, this time in a supermarket instead of in a school. But yeah. technically, he's still out. He's not on the sex offenders register at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that every single time I've rewatched Election, as I've grown up, I probably mm-hmm. watched this as a you know young adult or teenager. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna refrain from calling myself as an adult until like my mid twenties. <laughs> <because, laughs> yeah. Fair. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that would be fair. But it's the it's the why is Tracy unlikable and yeah. it's why Tracy is annoying and mm-hmm. it's her voiceover that generates so much tenderness in me towards that character yeah. because she it is her against the world mm-hmm. in a way that we've seen this many, many times over in teen movies. But this time, her actual fear is justified. There is someone out to get her. And mm-hmm. it is an adult with actual power over her. And mm-hmm. she's not just being crazy. And she's not, you know, overcounting the votes or overtrying. She works really hard. She tries really hard. Yeah, she is annoying, but mm-hmm. she's not a bad person. And mm-hmm. there are people, bless him, the the Paul character, the beautiful, um, you know, injured himbo. Yeah. Still likes Tracy and has no desire to hurt her or inconvenience her. No, running for like, Tracy's the president. best. Yeah. But it's the, the shot that absolutely kills me in the film mm-hmm. is when Tracy realizes what has happened and mm-hmm. that it's Mr. McAllister that's behind the, say, the election fraud, the yeah. real election fraud that's happening in this <laughs> yeah. film. She's devastated by this idea that an adult, a figure with authority, a teacher, yeah. mm-hmm. and as a nerd, teachers are kind of, you know, that's benevolent figures of, of authority. They're not, you know, your parents can, you know, ground you, they can yell at you. Mm-hmm. Um, Tracy is shown to have a great, very close relationship with her mother, but, you know, she's she wants to, she's a do-gooder. She wants to mm-hmm. do best. She wants to be the first one to, you know, to be asked. She'll do everything right and, and kind of early or better than everyone else around her by her own desire. Mm-hmm. And to see herself betrayed by a teacher who she looked up to. Yeah. Oh, that's heartbreak that will sting for the rest of your life. The rest right? of your life. No, that becomes a core memory that will mm. inform how she approaches a, like relationships with her superiors and her elders forever. Yeah. Yeah. He and ruined I, that. He ruined that. And yes, he does accidentally also ruin his own life in the process. Oh, and, yeah. and by the end of this movie, you love the fact that that's happened and yeah. that he still clings on to, you know, some semblance of self-respect, which makes him a, f- a fantastic character too. But it's the pettiness of them both. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're just as petty him as a grown ass man as her as a as an ambitious teenage girl. They still they have the same edge to them, but with one and the reaction to them as as audience members and kind of mm-hmm. by the press and how people reacted to it is quite interesting. It's like he should know better. Yeah. And yet we excuse him so much quicker than we excuse her because she is she's annoying and a bit shrewy. Mm-hmm. When you, like you said, like you couldn't, you couldn't tell me what it was like the first time you watched this movie. What were earliest points of memory with Tracy that you kept with you? When it was like, that was the first time I really grabbed onto Tracy compared to watching it now. What are the scenes that might stick with you? And and are those the well, same or have they, have they differed? I remember the, uh, perhaps this was influenced by election. Perhaps hmm. it was influenced by another movie. But the one thing you could not be in high school mm-hmm. was seen to be trying too hard a try hard a try hard yeah yep. so you you could do really well but you had to make it look effortless uh-huh. you always had to do this thing you know it's like before a test it's like oh you know i didn't really study i spent yeah. 
a week studying. It's like, oh, you know what? I'm probably going to fail. Like, I've not even looked at my notes. Like, yeah. that, the the anti-tryhard persona was uh-huh. the one that I tried very hard to um, yeah. cultivate. And I was kind of academically gifted, so things did come easier to me yeah. than perhaps, like, um, you know, other classmates who had to uh-huh. try double as hard in order to get the same grades. But I made a lot of effort, but very often I wanted to make sure that people didn't realize how much effort I'd made. Yeah. And obviously the good teachers will can tell. They can tell when <laughs> yeah. you're trying and when you're not. Yeah. And, you know, privately they would call me out when they knew that I wasn't really trying. But I always try very hard and I took a lot of pride in my perfect notes mm-hmm. and I transcribed my notes from, you know, in the evening from one notebook to another so they were cleaner and I could underline mm-hmm. everything perfectly and it was all very, you know, underlined. And the other thing was... And I knew this early on, but I also knew that you could not show this as mm-hmm. like a thing. I was just as ambitious as Tracy. Okay. And my understanding was that ambition was equivalent to hard work. So if I wanted something, I had to mm-hmm. work very hard for it. If I wanted good grades, I had to work hard for it. And then the more you work, the easier it would become eventually. Okay. But also... Uh, there was no election in my school. I didn't go to high school in the States. So mm-hmm. it was a very different system. And we definitely didn't have anything like prom kings or queens or mm-hmm. class presidents or anything like that. But obviously, there's popularity contests everywhere. Oh, yeah. But the one thing that I did work extremely hard at that nobody knew because it was outside of school was, Jordan, I loved entering competitions. <laughs> I would... Really? Just, I would enter competitions like... If I could submit more than one entry, be that writing <laughs> or drawing, I used to draw yeah. a lot. I one time I entered a competition like forty times in order oh to win God. a Barbie, because and I was maybe seven, so this is very before election. <laughs> but that there was is no huge Tracy Flick energy, very big Tracy Flick energy. I there was no rule against, there was no maximum amount of entry. So I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I have to win. What is the surefire way, way that I will win? Mm-hmm. Well, what if I'm the person who submits the most entries? Yeah. yeah. Surely they'll pick one of mine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's time for a quick break. But when we come back, we will have more with Anna about Tracy Flick and other unlikable women of cinema. Then at the end, I will have one quick thing before I go that is a shameless promotion for myself, uh, guesting as host of Bullseye. So stick around the end for a personal plug. I'm glad you said that because nobody says that. Can I just say thank you to you for such a thoughtful interview? Oh my God, yeah, I think you nailed it. Bullseye, interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. Listen to the Bullseye podcast only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. Listen, you like podcasts, right? Sure you do. Don't try and lie to me. You're listening to one right now, so why not try a different one? called R1, The Flophouse. Uh-huh, and on The Flophouse, we watch a movie and talk about it. And then sometimes we also do other stuff. It's all meant to be funny and fun, and we think you'll have a good time. And just to be clear, the name of the podcast is not Our One, The Flophouse. It's just called The Flophouse. <laughs> I do a lot of correcting Dan. The Flophouse, a lot of correcting Dan. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. My guest today is film critic, cultural commenter, Final Girls podcast host, and the author of the brand new book, Unlikable Female Characters, The Women Pop Culture Wants You to Hate. We've been talking about one such woman today, Tracy Flick from Election. Now that I have more life experience, I feel sorry for Mr. McAllister. I mean, anyone who's stuck in the same little room, wearing the same stupid clothes, saying the exact same things year after year for his whole life, while his students go on to good colleges and move to big cities and do great things and make loads of money. It's got to be at least a little jealous. I noticed it was a little low for you. It's like my mom says, the weak are always trying to sabotage the strong. Did you have your Mr. McAllister moment of realizing that, like, authority wasn't actually always there to protect you and that it was actually something to be wary of. 
That is such a profound question. I definitely never had that with teachers. I was okay. very lucky that all my okay. teachers were lovely. And I had quite a few teachers that were genuinely inspirational and mm-hmm. dedicated professionals who wanted wanted students to be eager, wanted students to be keen and showed me stuff and directed me to mm. books and to music and to different possibilities for, mm. you know, further education, like, you know, going to classes, going to exhibitions, going to, you know, after school courses and stuff like that, that would tap into my nascent interest that I did not know could exist in a world where people yeah. could have a life and have a career in those spheres it wasn't all just you know you work in an office or you're a lawyer or a doctor or something like that those were the those were jobs and what I liked was fun things that I like to do in my own time in the evening after school yeah they they opened up kind of this whole world of no you can you can be this thing as well that's a Mm -hmm. that's a job that people do Mm -hmm. um but uh I think actually the really transformative moment for me was when I realized that my teachers were not always that devoted to the class and they did not like us all equally. Interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that came probably from the very uncool thing of just having conversations with teachers because they were <laughs> they were <laughs> interesting and <Yeah>. interested <laughs> in in talking about things that my classmates were not. Yeah. Um, and probably an early showing of that of that ambition where it's like, uh-huh. well, you know, what did you do? Where did you go to school? Or what what is this? Or what yeah. is that? Or what is this job? Or what is this possibility? Um, but I remember them not saying things directly to me, but starting to notice the dynamics between them. Ah. That felt like privileged information. Like I could see when one teacher really disliked another or called each other out and stuff. Or one teacher just like would get very annoyed or very disappointed. And, you know, (laughs) I I could see that they were frustrated because their real job was, you know, something else that they did. And they just did the teaching to pay the rent. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, wow, okay, so you don't really want to be here. But you do like teaching me, so that means I'm special. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Mr. McAllister. Not wasting any time, are you, Tracy? You know what they say about the early bird. Yeah, I do. Good luck there, Tracy. Thanks, Mr. M. Mm -hmm. I'll see you in class. Yep. Well, and, and to the to the work that you you do, I, I, the work that you're doing now with like unlikable female characters, there is such a. From what I understand, I have not read the book that Tom Perotta wrote that Election is based on. Me either. But from what I was reading about Tracy and various things, it sounds like Tracy in the book is more s- clearly seductive. Like the mm. character of her is more clearly sensual, perhaps. Whereas mm-hmm. the Tracy we see in this movie is childlike. She has, like, Peter Pan collars. And, like, when we first see her, she is the first student at school. She is setting up her folding table to get signatures so she can become a nominee for class president. And she's sitting on a chair, swinging her feet back and forth in such a way that indicates to you they don't quite touch the ground if she, like, points her toes up high enough. And I, and yet, we meet her as well with the information that this teacher had a sexual relationship with her. We see, like, him taking a root beer out of her hand and taking a sip from it before he guides her into a bedroom. And I wanted to talk to you about, like, the tension in this character between her primness and her, like you said, her shrewiness, and, like, almost the raunchy elements of the story that involve her. Like, this is a character with a sex life that she was like sexually assaulted by a teacher but like this is a sexually active character who participated in a sexual relationship and everything about her comportment and her styling says she would be a complete prude that she Mm -hmm. would be like totally asexual and want nothing to do with that so i wanted to hear from you about like the the double time work of that unlikable character where we have like a sexually active little girl who tempts older men but also like the striver try hard perfect student who's just like unrealistically precocious and how she's all of those shitty things we consider popularly shitty things at one time and we are looking at her as a protagonist anti-hero antagonist i don't know of this film all the same time jordan all the same time well 
the thing about Tracy that I noticed kind of with watching it most recently for this for this episode is that she so desperately wants to not be a teen. Yeah. She is precocious, but she's still a child, you know, mm-hmm. and, the, and the movie shows us this through the scenes that you described, through her hair, you know, through the way that Reese plays her with these just, you know, like puppy dog eyes kind mm-hmm. of constantly looking out by just the way that she's framed, you know, she's a petite woman anyway, but the mm-hmm. film frames her as like child size. Yes. But there's also these, you know, this voiceover and a couple of shots of her kind of wondering and mm-hmm. um, pondering about the affair that she had with her teacher and how Did she, she very was explicitly so- does not see in, in this she age in her retelling not- of it does yeah. not see this as a victimization. She does not. It's evident that everybody else does, but mm-hmm. she does not. And the way the thing that she kind of recalls about their affair, the way that she calls it, is that they could talk like adults. Yeah, you know. So she ha- and she absolutely reneges any kind of friendship in her high school. She does not like her peers. She does not mm-hmm. have any friends. She hangs out with her mom. She loiters around the teachers, mm-hmm. and she has this kind of relationship, what she thinks is a relationship with a teacher. So she does she is so eager and so anxious to grow up and to go out into the world mm-hmm. to keep doing things. Everything that she's doing, this accumulation of achievements, it's all just taking time over until she can actually go on to a bigger high school mm-hmm. and then a bigger world. So but she cannot actually see through the adult world because she's not an adult. Mm-hmm. So I think that actually that dynamic this time around, I saw it as like quite quite sad if mm-hmm. I'm honest like it I felt really sad for Tracy because I could absolutely imagine and I know there's some sort of sequel in the works with Reese Witherspoon um returning to the character yes this Tom Proto wrote an additional book called Tracy yeah. Flick can't win that yes. Reese I, is signed on to to star in I believe exactly there is a sadness because we're so with Tracy as a teenager we never get mm-hmm. to hear her we get a glimpse of her supposedly as a Georgetown student kind of getting mm-hmm. into you know this big limo with ostensibly a politician and there's a kind of a mirroring of her once again looking up to an older man and getting into potentially dangerous situations with another older authority figure but there is a deep sadness in Tracy that I think might emerge should we see her meet her again later on in life because mm-hmm. she's so desperate to not be in the world where she is at the moment mm-hmm. that she isn't really seeing how adults might take advantage of her eagerness. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because the because the image that she has of the world is so small and so naive, there is like the fact that we never actually see her understand or deal with the actual reality of that so-called affair mm-hmm. it's it's not humbling it's one of the most sympathetic things it's the reminder for us as an audience that she is not a temptress she's not a grown woman she is a yeah. child who simply has concocted kind of an image of herself as an adult mm-hmm. but she's not there yet bringing up the, the notion of the temptress and obviously to your book with like unlikable female characters and Tracy occupying so many so many points of a Venn diagram of unlikability that we want to cast off about about girls and women this movie presents I feel like an interesting consideration that I wanted to hear from you about where because obviously like you said the dangerous Lolitas of the 90s what we have in a character of Tracy though like we have we have a world we live in a world in which like when a girl comes of age and she goes through puberty she becomes an object of sexual desire of men and men have a way of pawning that off the idea of like I was powerless before her like you have the power teenage girl you control me because you're so beautiful like I simply couldn't help myself and she is not that Lolita stereotype in her presentation she is buttoned up and she is prickly and she is cold and she is defensive. She's nice to people, but like it's she has a lot of persona versus like interiority, like honest to her coming out. And I wanted to hear about this sort of like damned if you do, damned if you don't notion of like girls coming of age where it doesn't actually matter if you are the Alicia Silverstone figure with the pouty downturned mouth and like wearing the gingham bikini under Nick's window or if you are an A student striver whose top button is always buttoned, the world will still make you the teenage girl who overpowered the adult man. And I wanted to mm-hmm. hear from you about that. Well, in the in the world of election, because this, this kind of this... um 
this situation with Tracy and Dave is kept relatively under wraps. Like you say, yeah. you know, there's no uh, there's no kind of um, police involvement. It's mm-hmm. just a, a parent and school interaction, right? He, the teacher gets sacked and everybody moves on with their lives. Mm-hmm. But the world becomes embodied in Mr. McAllister, right? He judges mm-hmm. her because she... She, in air quotes here, she got his friend fired. Yeah. Which is inconvenient for him. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. She, We see kind of the backstory from her point of view of how they got together and how they met. It's romanticized to a degree, but she is mm-hmm. not the person in control right here. Yeah. She's not the person with a wife and a house and a job and an age and a level of maturity that's expected of you and a position of power as well with effectively kind of access to the public life and most of the day of this kid. But she so desperately wants to be seen that -hmm. as long as it's one person who's seeing her, Mm -hmm. that the other elements are part of the package, right? Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. easy to see how that seduction would happen for a kid like Tracy who has no friends mm-hmm. and fundamentally embraces and understands her own likability as the the thing I have to get through in order to get the thing I want you know mm-hmm. I she does not care whether she's liked or appreciated by anyone else as mm-hmm. long as they as long as she gets whatever it is that she wants you know in yeah, this she case the this, election she's very fixed that like we you know we get that great opening sort of bit from her about like you know none of this would have happened if Mr. McAllister hadn't done what he did like None of this would have happened if Mr. McAllister hadn't meddled the way he did. He should have just accepted things as they are instead of trying to interfere with destiny. You see, you can't interfere with destiny. That's why it's destiny. And if you try to interfere, the same thing's just going to happen anyway. And you'll just suffer. You know, when you were when you were the high school trying hard girl, were, were you sure in your mind of your path in the way that Tracy was sure? Or were you just like, I'm faking it till I make it? I think I was pretty sure. But I think okay. every single teenager has the sense that they're the only one going through the things that they're going <laughs> yeah. through. Don't we? Beautiful. Whatever that might be, it is mm-hmm. only happening to you. And if it's happening to someone else, it's happening to you the most. Yeah. <laughs> That is so, that is it. Trace is essentially that, you know. She yeah. talks about herself, you know, I, we, what you need to know about me is that I'm an only child and I have the yes. very most special relationship with my mother and, you know, I am incredibly special and you should all know that. I have achieved all these things already mm-hmm. because I am so determined and because I am so very um, unlike everyone else my age. This yeah. is the thing that makes me better. And what would make her even better than having an affair that nobody else is having? Although, you know, we don't know that this right. you know, doesn't happen in isolation. Right. Of course. I think this is the if this was any other sort of film, like there is mm-hmm. another kind of election that could have been done that isn't done, which is the lethal Lolita aspect. Right. Yeah. But we don't actually get that because the the focus of the obsession is not actually by Tracy over Dave or by Dave over Tracy. It's actually by a bystander, a -hmm. secondary character who's absolutely no skin in the game. Mm -hmm. It is all out of pettiness. That's what makes it a comedy. Because actually, everything you've described, Jordan, if you sit and look at this movie, or someone on the internet might have done this already, if you re-edit this movie to be an erotic thriller in the vein of Poison (laughs) Ivy or The Crush, it is absolutely fucking disgusting. Disgusting. But that is not the movie that Election is for us. It's a comedy. We only... That is the backstory that we need in order to understand why another grown-ass man is so obsessed with this teenage girl, but in an entirely unsexual way. And it, and well, and then there's and then we get like I remember when I just descended into a new layer of hell watching this movie with my mom that first time <laughs> is the scene where Mr. McAllister is having sex with his wife and he starts envisioning Tracy's head on the back of his wife's head mm-hmm. and she is very like you know in her Tracy flick voice she is like pleading with Mr. McAllister to have sex with her and like and saying like please like using like polite beckoning language and like when it. It is fascinating to watch how, like, this man who, like, repeats multiple times throughout the movie, like, how morals and ethics, morals and ethics, and how wrong to his friend Dave. He doesn't report his friend Dave for having sex with a teenager, but he sure, he sure makes him, takes him to task for it and finger wags at him. Talk about morals and ethics, but, like, then he is having, like, erotic fantasies that are also still based in, like, 
hatred of this character hmm. in kind of every dark moment of his life. Yeah, I mean, Fuck. I don't. I I genuinely don't think that's a sexual obsession that he has. With I don't Tracy. think. So. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think there's a sense of, I mean, I've mentioned the word petty a few times before, but there's a sense of repulsion for someone. There's kind of like an envy mm-hmm. that he feels repulsed about in himself. Mm-hmm. And it continues, right? It mm-hmm. continues. When when Tracy exits his life and then he re- remakes his life in New York and is a tour guide in the, in the Natural History Museum, he is fairly happy with his life yeah and the way that it's fallen around until he spots her again mm-hmm. and within the same chunk of voiceover we hear Mac- mr McAllister, matthew broderick kind of his entire voice shifting from yes. fairly content pretty happy to be in washington sightseeing he's gonna yeah. take drink <laughs> he's he's cheerful to just seething who seething the with fuck does pettiness, she think she is repulsion and envy My first impulse was to run over there, pound on her window, and demand that she admit she tore down those posters and lied and cheated her way into winning that election. But instead, I just stood there. And I suddenly realized I wasn't angry at her anymore. I just felt sorry for her. I mean, when I think about my new life and all the exciting things I'm doing, and then I think about what her life must be like, Probably still getting up at five in the morning to pursue her pathetic little dreams. It just makes me sad. I mean, where is she really trying to get to anyway? And what is she doing in that limo? Who the fuck does she think she is? And you know, and the childlike way of watching this film is being like, oh, he's jealous because she had a larger path in right. front of her than him. I don't think he ever even wanted that. He just wanted to yeah. make sure that she did not get to have it. I agree. It like I this- don't think he did want that. I did I when when we have his voice over at the beginning of the movie and he talks about all I ever wanted to do was teach and him like I'm yeah. like no, I believe this guy is not papering over like dashed dreams. This is truly him living his dream. Yeah. He's living his best life. He's happy, but he his obsession mm-hmm. is to just it's the reverse of um, of a sexual obsession, right? Is I just want to make sure you are you do not get what you want. He wants to see that sweet, sweet disappointment on her face mm-hmm. when her name does not get called uh, as being elected the the high school president. For some reason, one of the most enduring images of cinema for me is Reese Witherspoon wrenching down on the button maker to make her campaign buttons in that little angry face she makes when she's so tiny and determined. And then, like, when she finally loses it and tears down all of her own campaign posters in the hallway with the attempt to, like, sabotage, like, blame someone else and sabotage them for ruining her campaign posters. Like, and the the monologue about, like, you know, some people didn't have, like, dads who gave them cars on their 16th birthday. And just like how the entitlement of this himbo gets to trump all of her hard work and dedication. Like, tell me about Tracy's rage. Tracy fucking loves effort. Tracy (laughs) hates anyone who is effortlessly anything. Yeah. Unless you are there single-handedly customizing 480 cupcakes yeah. she doesn't want does not want to hear from you it's this absolutely obsessive approach to work mm-hmm. as the thing that makes you good mm-hmm. right and i don't think it's necessarily rage so much as it is again jealousy it's mm-hmm. jealousy that someone else got something without working as hard as her, which mm-hmm. is this very childlike idea that the world and the working world is a meritocracy. And if you yeah. work hard enough, you'll get the thing that you want. It is not true. And I wish someone had told me that years earlier. Right. Like, Tracy is heading straight for a burnout. I'm surprised she hasn't burned out already at age <laughs> 16 or however old she is in this yeah. film. But... It's Tracy not being able to understand that she does not have the thing that makes her life just a little bit easier. Yeah. It's that, it's that, you know how some people have the ick factor and you just, you just, you just hate them kind of on side. There is something though about some people as well that just makes, makes life's a bit easier for them. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily the best at anything. They're not Mm -hmm. necessarily, you know, that eager to do anything. They'll work enough. Mm -hmm. and they'll try enough 
but it's just a slightly smoother sailing for them. Mm-hmm. And it's a smooth sailing that Tracy absolutely is allergic to. How did you feel about the smooth sailors? How, what's your thoughts on the smooth sailors? Has that well, been a, a process of coming to terms? Or or are you perhaps, do you have that expect? I mean, I think you're just so cool that I'm like, well, yeah, Anna's got that thing that makes her coast past other people. But that's just a vibe. So like, Jordan, what's the reality been? You're one of the few people in the world who maintains this theory, but I listen, let me tell am you, not letting it go. I, I, I do st- have remains of the Tracy Flick energy. I have uh-huh. to do a lot of work to just <laughs> focus on my own lane and not obsess <laughs> over how much more work or how much more or less effort someone else is doing. I think mm-hmm. depending on what field you're in, mm-hmm. the comparison of it all is such an easy rabbit hole to fall down oh, into. Oh yeah, the fields we occupy are perhaps oh, the most yeah. exacerbating ones you could possibly exist in for this trait. And you know, you could interpret the Tracy Flick energy as both a positive and a negative, and I think it's kind of a bit of both, because on one mm-hmm. hand, the absolutely dogged determination and the ruthlessness in the pursuit of your own uh, achievements and your own happiness and making mm-hmm. sure that you feel content and happy with the things that you're doing and the way mm-hmm. that you're doing them, beautiful, admirable, aspirational. On the other hand, the absolute obsession with peeking through the window as the, in the way that Tracy does to look at how everything is made and Mm -hmm. making sure that you are the person whose name is at the top of every pile. Mm -hmm. That is a recipe for disaster, especially when you work in the creative fields and you can see, you know, how much, uh, how much did this script sell for? How much was this book deal or how old someone was when they got this thing or how many uh, articles is someone publishing a month or who (laughs) follows who on Twitter? (laughs) There are so many different avenues for one to become absolutely obsessed with Mm -hmm. comparing yourself to someone else. That is the, that is the, terrible side of Tracy Flick energy that I still yeah. struggle with, especially because of the the nature of the, the field that we both work in. So I guess my, my final question to you would be, what kind of unlikable woman, unlikable female character, how would you taxonomize Tracy Flick in how you have considered this canon of, of characters? Oh, she's a shrew. She's a shrew in training. She's too smart for her own good she tries too hard she's too rigid in the rules of the of the world that she's created for herself and she expects everyone else to abide by them mm-hmm. uh, if she does um she's not strictly doing anything wrong but yeah. her, everything about her is and this is a crucial word annoying to people <laughs> yeah. and because it's annoying to people they sometimes someone be that the audience, be mm-hmm. that Mr. McAllister or someone else down the the invisible life of Tracy Flick that we haven't seen on the screen, mm-hmm. um, will just become obsessed with destroying her. Not because she's because of what she's doing, but because of who she is. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that was the that was one of the hardest chapters to write because it is almost an invisible ick. Mm. that makes people feel that way, especially about teenage girls mm. and about grown women. You know, it's the Anna Gunn of it all. It's the Skylar yeah. White of it all. You know, Tracy Flick is part of that same um, tree of female characters who people hate, even though they're not the villains of the yeah. story. <laughs> and very often they're the victims of the story. And yet mm-hmm. we decide that they have somehow earned that punishment that they're subjected mm-hmm. to. Well, I'm glad to go out on that fucked up note, you know? That's <laughs> that's how that's a good end cap for the senseless lack of like for for women like Tracy Tracy Flick. Tracy Flicks of the world, we must unite. There's good in that in that little striver. You Through know, that jer- collective action th- unstoppable. Unfuckwithable. It is the, you know, everybody gave Jeremy Strong such a bad time when that New Yorker article came out. I was like, oh, he's such a striver. It's like, good for him. Good for him. You, you strive on, It wasn't on, cool buddy. when we did this to Anne Hathaway. It's not cool that we're doing it to Jeremy Strong. And it's not cool that we did this to Tracy Flick either. I know she's not real, but she's real in my heart. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and taking time to talk to me. Always a pleasure, Jordan.
thank you so much to my beloved, honestly, Anna Bogutskaya. If you're in the U.S., Anna's book, Unlikable Female Characters, is out now, and it comes out in the U.K. on June 9th. And just a quick shout out to other Feeling Seen alum book news, Kyle Turner's book, The Queer Film Guide, 100 Great Movies That Tell LGBTQIA Stories, is now out. It's out. You can buy both of these books. They are Feeling Seen co-signed. But now, speaking of cosigns of one's own things, my one quick thing before I go is about, uh, I was recently, uh, on very short notice, I was asked if I could step in for the Jesse Thorne on his show Bullseye to do an interview with Bridget Everett. And as I had interviewed her before for the Feeling Scene podcast, I was really excited to get to check in with her again because we had such a wonderful conversation about Rudy the first time and she's so just warm and forthright and honest and kind like it's such a joy talking to Bridget it was such a privilege the first time I was so excited to get to do it again but really did not foresee that I would start crying within five minutes of our second conversation that we had um it's the interview is live on Bullseye now I've am so proud of it as I always am when I get a chance to work uh, conversations about friendship love stories and and friendship romances great and sprawling epic friendship romances anytime I can bring that into something that I'm involved in and find somebody who truly reciprocates with my passion and um, my love for that strand of conversation and also you know, when I get the treat of someone who meets me there with their own life experiences and how, you know, big, beautiful friendship love stories play out in their own lives. And they play out also in the show Somebody Somewhere, uh, Bridget Everett's HBO show that is now in its second season. Uh, It's an honor. And I'm I'm bowled over every time because I I talk about it as much as I do uh, because I don't hear it in as many places as I would like. And so I feel like I need to keep beating the drum, but Bridget allowed me to go to that place with her. And in addition to being just warm yet again and funny and (laughs) so much like gentle candor, uh, in conversation with her, I just couldn't be more pleased to have gotten to speak with her again and to have gotten to go deeper on topics. We maybe like had to had to kind of rock skip over the first time because one has to have an agenda in the show. One must complete the interview. Uh, but please do listen to that interview on Bullseye. If not for me, do it for Bridget Everett, who is just big as life um, in, in every imaginable way. Uh, but that is that is our show. You can follow us on Twitter at FeelingScenePod or send us an email at FeelingScene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jor Crew on Twitter. That's J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.